here's what I know, dude. I'm alive. Yeah. I'm a fucking live dude. This is what's been happening for the last five days. I've been chased by the woolly fucking tiger. I'm the fucking hoofed ibis. Oh. And I've fucking been running, dude. I've been fucking tick 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 all through this fucking goddamn wintry mess. And that fucking fucking shaggy ass fucking tiger right on my heels I'm like And I'm alive. And guess what? I look at that tiger. He's fucking getting. I'm looking at that fucking snow coming off the fucking trees. And I'm going, all right, that motherfucker's about to go sleep. God damn it, really? Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. With me, Bob Schneider, and your other host, Clint Wells. You're welcome. Well, here we are. Somehow, we're at another wacky, wild episode of You Guessed It. I'm okay. You're okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. Bob and I haven't spoken in what feels like ages. Yep. So... It's a little catch-up time. Oh yeah, how's it going? How's it going over there? Pretty good. You're back in your house. You everything's back up. Were you able to do your? Uh, did you have to skip your Monday night stream during the snow snow apocalypse? Uh, no. So I I did my Monday night stream, and then a few hours later I went to bed, and then about a half an hour after I went to bed and was sleeping a sound sleep, the sleep of the, you know, the damned as it were. Uh, my wife decided to wake me up and let me inform me that we no longer had power. Instead of just letting me sleep, which would have been nice to wake up in the morning finding we had no power instead, now it's 12.30 at night and now I'm up all night. Well, last last we heard you were staying at your ex-wife's house who you're friends with and her husband and everyone's friends and that was all good to go, but you were using tub water to use the restroom. That was the last we heard of Bishniz. So get us yeah, back now, to- uh, Now I'm back your- home. Uh, yeah, so we were there for a day and a half. Power, in fact, we went over there and a few hours later, our power came back on. But we had to stay there for another day because it was, uh, there was a, uh, it got really cold and the roads became impassable again to get to my house. So we had to hang out for a day, which was fine and great. And wonderful, actually. And uh, then we went back home, and uh, we had some issues with the water. Uh, a water main had broken into our neighborhood, but they fixed it right away. And then we had water that was brown uh, for about a day, and then now everything's back to normal. And it's well, like good. it never happened. All the ice melted. It was uh, lovely, like almost 80 degrees yesterday. I was walking around the neighborhood like nothing had happened. 
people are very eager to move on. And I, you know, I think once rule number one, I think once things are looking better in that situation, I think people are ready to move on, dude. Someone was telling me about um, how during the Spanish flu, which was basically what we're going through now a hundred years ago, that there wasn't even that much press about it because people just sort of shouldered it. It was so unspeakably horrible. And that flu was actually really bad because it, it killed a lot of people in their 20s and 30s. It wasn't, it didn't just like target. Killed a lot of kids. Drugs. Right. Like imagine the version of what we're going through now, but it targets kids primarily. Like it's unthinkable and we won't even go into that. But how there wasn't even a lot of press about it is because people just wanted to fucking get through it. And then once they did, a little thing called the Roaring Twenties, which by the way, we are going to have a Roaring Twenties because by the time shit's normal again, which is probably going to be next year, people are going to be fucking going out. Uh, by the way, dude, people are going out already. People in their 20s, people in their teens and 20s, and even dare say 30s, they don't give a fuck, dude. They're going they're, out right, already. There have been people doing that this whole time. And there are, all, there are always going to be people who either don't care, they're selfish and they don't care, or maybe they got it and once you get it, you know, there's not a lot known about getting it twice, or they're with people who don't care. There's always going to be people who go out. But I'm talking about as a, but even they who go out, there's like a, it's taboo. There's like, you're going to maybe face some criticism. I know in Tennessee, you're going to face some criticism, some social pressure if you're not wearing a mask or if you're not being distanced and shit goes viral every day of someone making a stink in a gym or or at a fucking doctor's office or whatever. Those people are like pariahs in society now. And I, I get it. I, I get that there's a big political issue with that. But let's take all that off the table. Once we as a society can go back to normal, people are going to be fucking naked and nude in the streets. And I'm going to be like, there's a naked guy on my street. You're not going to be one of the naked people? <laughs> I'll Bob, listen, I will never be one of the naked. I me neither, dude. <laughs> dude, anytime I see somebody naked on stage like uh who's your tool guy? Like, Maynard James Keenan, yeah. Yeah. Every time I see somebody naked on stage, I'm like, well, that won't ever be me. Even back in the day, dude, even when I was like at my when I was looking like fucking cut and tight, no way was I getting naked on stage ever. When I was like twenty eight, this was before I met you. I was on a rock and roll club tour and I had just lost a bunch of weight. I, it was like the first time I ever did like a juice diet thing. I like I lost like 25 pounds and I was already pretty tiny. Like, you know, I, I've, on the current thing I'm doing, I lost 22 pounds and I still feel like I got a ways to go. But anyway, we were on this rock tour playing rock music and I was like, I've never, you know, I grew up watching fucking Slash and all of them with their shirtless guitar heroes. And I was like, man, I'm going to play this show with my fucking shirt off because I've never done it. Bad move. And I was like, I, I don't think I can do it by myself. So I convinced the drummer. I was like, no one else would do it. And I convinced the drummer. I was like, dude, I can't go out there, you know, with by myself. So he had his shirt off too. And we're like doing push-ups right before we go on the stage to like engorge our, you know, like just trying to make the most of it. Yeah. We go out there. First of all, big room, maybe 400 cap, maybe 20 people there. Oh. Completely dead, completely dead crowd. And 
I'll never forget that. It was in Athens, Georgia. Like they're like, uh, oh, college town. We're gonna have a good walk up because the pre-sales are like six. And they're like, well, there's gonna be a good walk up because you know it's at it's college town. Anyway, like 25 people. We play the first song. I look back, the drummer had put a fucking shirt on. <laughs> and then what got I mean, I was like committed to it though, but here's what got real awkward, Bob. First three songs, big rock songs. Shirts off, no one's there, but I'm we're laughing and we're leaning into it. Fourth and fifth and sixth songs, real mellow. So I'm up there doing my ambient mellow guy shirtless, which wasn't real triumphant or cool. But yeah, the thought of doing that now, I remember I was in a cover band in high school with a bunch of guys in their 20s. I was in high school. I was like 18. And they were like, hey, we were playing actually a show with lots of people there. We were playing some show at at Senior Frogs in fucking Panama City. And they're like, hey, for the encore, we're going to do what give it away by the Chili Peppers and we're all going to wear the tube socks on our dicks. And they like threw a tube sock at me. I was like, "Uh, hey, guys, I'm not doing that. (laughs) They were like ready to go. You know, they're like 25, good looking guys, young. They're like, dude, just do it. You can tape it, you know, you tape it. Your dick doesn't have to be as big as a tube sock. And I'm like, well, there's just no way I'm doing it. It like bummed them out. They, They bailed on the whole plan because I was unwilling to do it. Can you yeah. imagine doing that? No. Dude, we were on this tour opening with the Ugly Americans, opening up for this band called Leftover Salmon. Do you know that band? Yeah. The, they're a jam band. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny we to think of you on tour with them. Well, we had no audience of our own. So we just were at the mercy of the fans of Leftover Salmon. Now, the fans of Leftover Salmon were hippies, and that's all they played for. And what they would do is they would just play this one song over and over. It was like a fast bluegrass song. The words were different, I guess, for every song, but it was the same song over and over and over. And then these people would dance. And we would get out there with Ugly Americans, which was sort of like Almond Brothers blues rock. It was, you know, it was not music that I enjoy or liked, but we were signed at the time. This was a band I was in right when I got sober. This is the Vulcan Death Grip band, right? Vulcan Death Grip band. So uh we were we were playing we were opening up for Leftover Salmon and we were playing just our nor- our you know what was on the record and stuff and these people were hating it. Yeah. And so usually when people are hating something I instead of going towards them I go away from them. And so we were I I forget where we were but we were in some place it was it was one of the smaller places we were at. Maybe a room that held maybe 300 people. And I think I've heard the story. Is it Higher Ground in Burlington? No, no, no. This was another, this was another place. But I, you, I may have told the story already. 
No, no, not on the podcast. I, I recognize the story from just touring. I, I'm excited so, for it to unfold on the podcast. But this is this is this is the last time that I was shirtless on stage, <laughs> and so. What we what I decided to do was there were I found some party store that was near the venue and I went in there and I bought a long red wig, kind of like the idea was to look like Axl Rose. And so I wore this big wig, took my shirt off, was wearing camouflage BDU pants, uh cut off, uh and some shoe and some like, you know, some Chuck T's. And uh the idea was like, we're going to go out there and we're going to do a rock show. By the way, here's what hippies don't want. Rock at all. All hippies want to do is they want to dance. They want harsh, that. Yeah. Rock and roll. And then they can do their hippie dance. That's all they want. I, I figured that out. <laughs> Literally two shows before the end of the tour, I went into the crowd one day. I'm like, let me go see what's going on in this crowd. And I went out there and they're all doing their hippie dance. It smells like like underarm odor and patchouli oil in the audience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And everybody's doing this dance. I'm like, all right, let me try doing this dance. So I start doing this dance. And as I do it, I look around and I realize nobody's looking at me doing this right. dance. Right. And once I realized nobody's looking at me, I started kind of getting into it. And by the end of this song, I was like, that's pretty fun. <laughs> I'm like, I hope they play another song just like that so I can do that dance. And then they crank into the same song again. And I'm yeah. like, oh, I get it. This is what I'm. This is what they want. So after that show, and I think, I think we had one or two shows left of that tour, and dude, this these people hated us on this tour. They hated us. The next show, we get up there and we play. This isn't the the Axl Rose show. This is much later. The next day, I go, hey man, we're gonna play this tempo. We're gonna take all our songs. We're gonna play them at this tempo, and we're gonna play them fast. And we just did that, and they loved it. They all got in there. They all danced. It was like, oh, we cracked the code. You know, a little late. It was like yeah. a, a a six week tour. We we caught on the last two shows. Yeah. Meanwhile, cut back to early on in the tour, third show, fourth show, whatever it was. I fucking put this wig on, take my shirt off, and write in sharpie across my bare chest the word pussy. <laughs> and get out and walk out on stage and we just start playing like back in black and just whatever like rock songs we can think of like and why these the hippies, word why the word pussy because that's the kind of dude i was back then <laughs> and i fucking the all the and there was like maybe i don't know 50 hippies in there already They'd gotten there, you know, before Leftover Salmon. And they were as far away from the stage as they could possibly be. They were like pressed against the wall as far back from the stage as they could. Nobody was getting close to the stage. And just looked at us the whole time in utter disdain. And my my uh, sound guy slash tour manager, Brad First, who I love, told me after the show, he goes, man, there were a couple of people that came up to me and were like, man, that band's pretty good. But we hate that singer. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that was, uh, after that, I've never felt so, I don't know. I felt so like hated. It was such a weird feeling, dude. Because I'm really good usually with crowds and and can usually get a crowd to come over to my side. But that day, man, those people were hating me. And I, in fact, I wrote a song right after that called Hippie Town 
where I was just talking shit about hippies. And I was like, fuck the hippies. But I'm telling you, once I figured out the code, which was play that dance music, it's like anything, dude. It's like Christian rock. You want an audience? Play Christian rock. But you got to do all Christian songs and you can't break the rules. You want a, you want a huge jam audience? Super easy. Like there's really easy ways to make a lot of money playing live music. You just follow the rules. And then if you break the rules, you're fucked. But guess what I am? I'm a breaking the rules motherfucker. Don't tell me what the rules are because I will break them. That is very true. I remember my in-laws came to see us play in Nashville. <clears throat> my mother and father-in-law, who I love dearly. Puerto Rican, sweet. In fact, they had never been to a concert. Never. <laughs> and we were playing third and Lindsley. And I think I, and I brought them on the bus and, you know, they'd never been on a tour bus. So it was really cool. Like, you know, had to hand my father-in-law a beer and everyone, including you on the bus, super sweet. Everyone was really sweet and accommodating. It was a great experience. But I do think I asked you at some point, I was like, listen, man, can we maybe not do Jesus has AIDS coming in the, you know, can we not do whatever the, that flavor is. Can we just skip country club tonight? You know, ah! tickle, tickle my balls while I fuck you in your face where we'd be without good God's grace. Can we maybe not do that one? Right. And we did a lot of vulgar shit that night. Because yeah, I, I gave you a rule. Well, here's the thing. I And I, I guarantee you, as soon as you told me that, I it immediately left my head and I never thought about it again the rest of the night. Yeah. Had I remembered that your in-laws were there, I would have I would have never done any of it. Like I don't I don't want to upset your in-laws and and I don't want to make you look bad or feel uncomfortable. So it wasn't like I did it intentionally, but I can't tell you how many times like every single time that Conrad, our old drummer, Conrad Chacroon, every time his parents came to the show and they were they are the sweetest, nicest people just like your in-laws. I would say the most heinous shit I've ever said. <laughs> like every time Conrad would be like, hey man, my parents are here, you know, just letting you know in case you want to like maybe tone it down a little bit. And I would and I would immediately forget they were there. It was, again, I wasn't doing it intentionally. I, I, here's the, t well, here's the deal. I believe that you believe that. And I believe that it left your head or something, but it stuck somewhere subconsciously. Oh Yeah. Somewhere subconsciously, like I don't think you're doing like, it to be mean or anything, or to be oh no, but, no, but not at all. In you was like someone told me to avoid something, so I'm gonna go towards it because that's what you do, dude. I'm telling you, man. Like, with, and by with the way, my, by the way, my in-laws had a fucking great time at that show. Sure, they, I don't even think they noticed any of right, that. They right. they were up front. They were proud of me, etc. It was a great time. Your shows are a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. I'm telling you, dude, I've had so many experiences like that. I, I remember one time uh, a friend of mine who was the head of uh, Nike Golf International. Uh, he live he lives he lives here. He's he's he don't work for them anymore, but he lives here half half the time, half the time in Portland, where where Nike headquarters is. So he had a bunch of people from Nike Golf in town, like in, including the CEO. Uh, they were all in town. He, he ended up buying 50 tickets out of 150 tickets at the Saxon pub, brought all these people in. They're all like, you know, white collar, you know, business guys. And 
I think I went into this thing about like fucking my grandma in heaven. <laughs> like I, or, or like Jesus, As you do. Jesus having sex with everybody that comes to heaven, men or women, because he's Jesus and, and you want to have sex with him because he's Jesus <laughs> and there's no AIDS in heaven and all this stuff. Like it was next level craziness. And half the Nike people loved it and half the Nike people were real upset. Wow. But again, it was like, I didn't realize you know, and after the show, I was, I was talking to John and like, as I'm walking out and I, as I see John, I'm like, oh, I forgot you brought on the Nike people. I was like, uh, how'd they like that? He's like, uh, some people liked it. <laughs> <laughs> some people did not like it. The and dude, though- the other, the other person that would get real upset is, is uh, Ted Roberson, my tour manager, because yeah. he just wants to succeed. He's so passionate. He's so dedicated to being in the band and wanting the band to succeed. And I would just go into these tirades at these shows where I would just upset some people and upset him and his sensibility, you know, his sort of Oklahoma conservative sensibility. Even though you wouldn't know it, you'd look at him and you go, that guy's just a hippie freak. You know, because well, he, he looks a lot like, of drugs. Yeah, he looks like Lenny Kravitz with a massive, the biggest afro I've ever seen in real life. Right, but I would but say he's a stuff, total sweetie pie. He, well, of course, he's a sweetie pie, and I'm a sweetie pie too. But I just yeah. say things on stage, basically to not be boring. Like if I if something comes into my head that I think is going to be funny, I'm going to say it. I had long talks with Ted on the bus about this issue, and he, yeah, like the thing that would bother him would be like in the middle of Big Blue Sea we would do the thing where we would just stare at the crowd for a long time. Yeah. To like performance art almost. Or yeah. in the middle of Big Blue Sea, we would do boom bop. We would do like a punk rock song. Right. And he always felt like it was sabotage. He was like, that song is so beautiful and it's a lot of people's favorite song. Right. And so instead of just playing their favorite song so they can see their favorite song and have a good memory, it always seemed to get derailed for performance art's sake which yeah. I always liked. And I feel like if I was a fan, I might lean into that. But I also got his point where you were talking about him just wanting to succeed. It's like, just go out. Don't sing the song about Jesus having, having sex in heaven. Don't fuck up one of your biggest songs. Just play the show. That was Ted's argument, you know? Right. But right. And I think people that are really successful do that. They like, they figure out what's the most successful show that we can put together, work on it and do that show every night and rock the house. But what I do is different. What I do is this thing, and it's what I want to see when I go see a band, which is like, is this guy going to die during the show? Like, is somebody going to get really hurt, badly injured? I want it to seem like I'm walking between two buildings without a tightrope and I could fall at any minute. That's what's exciting for me. Not knowing that everything's being played perfectly and blah, blah, blah. That doesn't interest me at all. Like there's nothing rock and roll about that. What I find really interesting about you saying that and having toured with you for years and years and years, I know that to be the case. You know, the only other artist that's really like that that comes to mind is Bob Dylan. People would just go to Bob Dylan shows and be like, none of the songs he played sound like the record. Like his shows to me seem like that, like, He's an artist doing something crazy, and the thrill of the show isn't that he played Mr. Tambourine Man exactly like the record. The thrill is that we're here watching this guy do his thing, you know? Well, yeah. Because even Frank Zappa, Zappa had that 
aura. Right. But Frank Zappa was insanely genius and all of his shit was meticulously written. Oh yeah. So so he would mix his set list up and his songs are crazy. Right. But his songs are meticulously written and performed. Like he would write the musical notations and everyone in his band could read them. Right. So what you weren't really watching an artist live or die. You were watching an artist sort of perfectly execute his own chaos. Which is different. But here's the difference between what Dylan does and what I do. So what Dylan did is that – let me just – let me break down Dylan for you real quick. So Dylan comes out. He writes all these fucking massive hits in the 60s or maybe the 50s, late – early 60s, 60s. whenever, whenever 60s. it was. 60s. Becomes the poster child for, you know, like the civil rights movement, folk singers, uh which he doesn't want any of, but he right. it gets all that shoved in his face he, and and becomes hugely successful and enjoys that for a minute, playing these songs that he's written on guitar. But then he's like, wants to fucking play in a rock band. And so he goes on tour with a rock band, plays the first half of the show acoustic, the way people like it. Then he goes on stage and plays in a rock band with an electric guitar and gets booed every single night for an entire tour. Mm-hmm. I do that one night. I do that one time and get booed. You'll never see me not with the, I'm, I've got the acoustic guitar every night. I'm never going electric. Bob Dylan, on the other hand, was like, fuck you guys. I'm going electric. Does it the whole tour, finishes the tour. Never once did he not get booed. Then gets into a horrible fucking car crash. Stops touring for forever. Finally, he starts touring again. And I guarantee you, Night after night of getting booed and that car crash combined turns him into this PTSD poster child. Mm. Now all he wants to do, all he wants to do is fuck the crowd. And I get fucking the crowd. I get like, okay, doing a little crowd punishment for my own amusement. But he does it every night for the entire show. He's like, oh, you want to hear your favorite song? Check it out. Here it is. Na 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 na. And it's just and none of the songs they all sound the same. They're all shitty. And it's it sounds like he can't sing or can't play. And I know because I know guys in his band he can sing just as good as he's ever been able to sing. But he won't. He can play well, the songs. He's yeah, he all he's doing is fuck you to the audience. Now the difference between me and him, I want the audience to have a good time. I want them to have this experience where they're seeing something that's never been seen before. That's the big difference between, but I just, to get there, it has to be that way for me. And sometimes what that means is taking chances that work out. And sometimes they don't work out when they work out. We're on, we're making magic because it's never happened before. That's where I think you and Dylan are similar though. It, it, It fleshes out differently, but your both starting point has to be exciting for you. And for Dylan, for maybe all the reasons you listed, what excites him is the shit he does. I mean, that's what he that's what he wants to do. No one tours more than Dylan. So it's not like, oh, I hate being out here. After the motorcycle accident in 66, he didn't tour until 1974. He just right. like lived in the country and had a bunch of kids. And then he's, he really only did these big tours in the 70s to make money because he married a lot of fucking people and owed a lot of people money. But starting in the 80s, something weird happened with him. And he his tour is called The Never-Ending Tour. Because all he does is fucking tour. So it's not like he doesn't like the audience or and he doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the money forever. 
there's something that he likes about being in front of people and just following his own crazy path. And that's what you do. You are more concerned with people having a good time than it seems like he is. But I think you both start with it has to excite you, you know? Dude, that whole thing about not giving the people what they want. Dude, if I had a bunch of hits, I would play all the hits the way people know them. I would mix in my new songs because I'm not going to just only play old songs night after night. I'm always going to have to play new songs. I have to. But I would do it the way people want. And like, if I was fucking Radiohead and wrote Creep, I'm playing, I'm ending every show with Creep. I'm not Radiohead where they don't play Creep for 35 years. I saw I saw a pretty interesting Dave Grohl interview where they were like, well, what are your favorite songs to play live? And he was like, the big ones that everyone loves. Yeah. He was basically like making fun of that. He was like, uh, my favorite songs are like our biggest hits because I like to see everyone singing all the words. Dude, if everybody's singing the words, there's nothing that's cooler than that. Well, the, what's that? There's a great, it's Tom Petty's like official first live album that he put out in the 70s. And the whole crowd sings the entire first verse and chorus to Breakdown. Oh, yeah. The band's just almost vamping. And it's you start to wonder, like, is he going to do the whole song like this? And thank God, because as a listener, he starts singing the second verse. But it's almost like showing the power of how that song is connected to let the whole crowd sing the verse. Dude, when you see, when you see that happen, you just... I'll, it happened twice at, at Summerfest. We we played at Summerfest one time, and Guster was the band on right after us. And as them. we're playing, as we are playing, thousands of kids are showing up at our show, and mm-hmm. they're not there for us. I mean, even then, I was probably 40 at the time, uh, or in my early 40s. My audience was around my age. So I was like, who are these kids? They must be here for the next band. And sure enough, by the time we finish, there's 3,000 kids under 25 there. But most of them look like they're under 20. Guster comes on stage and they start playing. And these kids sing every word of every song that those guys played. I'm one of them. I've I've never seen anything like it. It was amazing. I was like, oh, that's incredible. Then... I don't know if it was on that tour or another time we we're at Summerfest. We we're packing up our gear in the parking lot and we're right next to the stadium. Never been to the stadium at Summerfest because that's for big acts. There was a band in there playing called Bon Jovi, which I couldn't give a shit about. I, who, mm-hmm. care, who cares about Bon Jovi? I don't care about them. Uh, all of a sudden, 50,000, 70,000, I don't know how many people, but it sounded like the entire world started singing at the top of their screaming lungs. Oh, we're halfway there. It sounded like the goddamn army of the damned. Dude, I've never heard anything like it in my life. It was the craziest crowd group sing. And from that moment on, Anytime anybody says anything about Bon Jovi, I'm like, hey, stop right there. Go fuck yourself. When I heard that, like you hear Bon Jovi going, oh, man, we don't get the respect that Bruce Springsteen gets. I get it. Because that's what he hears. He hears all those people singing Living on a Prayer and all the other hits they had. And he's like, why am I not getting the respect? When you hear it, when you see it, you're like, this guy needs some respect. Yeah. So, so what if they're all cliched lyrics? So what if it's they didn't break any ground whatsoever? So what if it's fucking bubblegum pop rock? That shit 
when you hear it in a group setting like that, I'll never talk shit about Bon Jovi ever. Those motherfuckers deserve all the props. I love that story. And I actually have a story I want to tell in the Secret Weekly about putting my fucking foot in my mouth, accidentally meeting the guy who wrote that song, uh, Desmond Child, who lives here. And I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to tell that story in the Secret Weekly because it's a big foot and mouth story. Nice. Um, I do want to say thank you. And I couldn't agree more. And I always loved Bon Jovi because of my age and MTV. I never had any like, this is stupid and this is legit. And I, I thought Bon Jovi was just as cool as Metallica and whoever the fuck else was on MTV. So anyway, uh, it's funny that we ended this episode with some Bon Jovi love. I do want to say thank you to some patrons that we need to acknowledge for hopping on the ride, Bob, for saying, for what do we call it every week? Putting your money where your mouth is. That's what they're doing. Uh, Lisa Ballard, Jacob Poaku, And those are the two, I believe, that we need to acknowledge. So thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. That's awesome. We really appreciate it. Now you're going to get to hear my uh, Desmond Child story in the Secret Weekly. So take care of yourselves out there. Write in bobandclint at gmail.com. We'll read it on the show if we want to. Check out our other podcasts. Check out yeah, Bob's you, new album. Do- if you can't wait three days for the next podcast, check out Metal Up Your Podcast, which is Clint's uh, other podcast that he does with his good friend, who I don't know his name, which I should, which I feel bad that I don't know his name. What's your friend's name? Ethan. Ethan. Yeah. Uh, it's Clint and Ethan, they're, and they're doing what we're doing uh, over there. So check that out, and there's years worth of episodes that you can binge on, and you can check out my other podcast, The Song Club. You can watch that on YouTube if you want, or check it out wherever you watch podcasts. Anyways, uh, thanks for joining Patreon. If you haven't joined, join today by going to patreon.com backslash IOK, and you can join today, and you'll be able to watch this on video if you want, or you'll just be able to make the world better and feel good about yourself. Uh, So until next time, thanks. Bye. Bye, baby. (laughs) 